it's tempting to skip this chapter because it seems to be a boring history lesson. But every word of God's scripture is breathed out by Him. Therefore, it's profitable, whether we think so or not, to hear what our Father has to say about ancient history and the future. So open His Word to Daniel chapter 11, and maybe we can discover with our study leader Dave Wordson what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us about the world we live in from what God has said about ancient history. How many of you like war movies? Come on, guys, tell me you like war movies. John Wayne in the Alamo, remember that? How many of you like Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg's uh, gift to the genre? If you want to know what it was like to invade a D-Day, just watch the first 20 minutes. Some of you in the room actually had buddies that lived that, and some of you have dads that fought in the South Pacific. Uh, just recently, Tom Cruise kind of rejuvenated his career. Some of us wondered whether he could do anything besides Mission Impossible, and yet Bakary tells an incredibly powerful story. Very ironic, a Scientologist plays a really committed follower of Christianity, and so much so that he wants to try to join those and put a halt to the murders that the SS are committing. And so right in the modern day, again, the war movies. And if you follow Clint Eastwood, you know, he did the, you know, the battle of, of, you know, the attack on the island, and he did it from the United States perspective, and then he did it from the Japanese perspective. So the war genre goes on and on. One thing that I'm not, in war movies, I'm not usually bored. And that's why when I turn to Daniel chapter 11, it really troubles me. If you turn to Daniel chapter 11 today, uh, that's where we are, and this chapter is filled with war. Now, the Bible can tell scintillating stories. Just read the Joseph story. Read the book of Exodus and the children of Israel, the ten plagues and their deliverance from Pharaoh. So the Bible has the best stories in all the world, but to be honest with you, when I read Daniel chapter 11, it's boring. It's more than 300 years of war, but there's hardly any names. So I ask myself, you know, Lord, why don't you give us names. You know, why don't you give us some really captivating details and the names and, and all the intrigue? So I asked myself that, why no names? Why isn't there a riveting narrative? What in the world is Daniel getting at? Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. I've been studying this passage this week. I've been tempted to say, let's skip over Daniel 11, because this is the world of Twitters and video games and blockbuster movies and stuff. And in fact, one of the things that most churches do, we go to a 20-minute sermon and I kind of give you the latest thing in, in uh, counseling theory or the latest thing in how to save your money. And that's where a lot of us have gone. And I want you to know that I was really tempted to want to do that this Sunday. My conviction is that as a child of God, you need to know God's Word. I believe that right here in your lap, as you're opening up to Daniel 11, there's 66 books here, and you can read all the way through it. A lot of evangelicals, a lot of believers, brothers and sisters, have made commitments to read through the Scripture just recently. I want to challenge you to do that. It shouldn't be said, hey, I've never read all the way through the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. How much is Scripture? The parts that I like. The parts that I think are interesting, the parts that I think apply to us, what does it say? All Scripture. And it said it's God-breathed by God. And then it says that it's profitable. That means it's good for you. And it means it'll help you. It means it'll, it'll really help you to live a, a skillful life. 
And then it said that it will instruct you in godliness that you might be a man or woman who is thoroughly equipped to be able to do all the things that the Lord wants for you. So it actually drives right into your life. And what the reason that most of the time in our church family, like we'll do series, you know, that, that need to really relate and try to bring together. Hopefully those series will be built upon careful understanding of God's word. But the backbone of what we're trying to do here at Melodian Bible Church is that there's these books. And you need it to begin, begin at the beginning of the book and read all the way to the end of the book. Like a book like Daniel circulated among God's Old Testament people. Then it circulated among God's New Testament people. And the Lord used this over the last several hundred years, thousands of years, since Daniel wrote us in the beginning of the Persian Empire to build God's people. And we want you to be caught up in that. So I was really tempted but I'm going to work really hard not to bore you. But we're going to go look at Daniel chapter 11. If you're a historian, you're going to love this. Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Because what we're going to have, just so you'll place yourself, we're at the very end, the Babylonian Empire that we remember Nebuchadnezzar, and we studied all about his pride and how the Lord humbled him and Daniel's influence in his life. We've gone through that chapter 5, you know, where Belshazzar, who is this arrogant Babylonian king, and the Persians attack, and they take over. Now the whole Babylonian Empire is gone. It's exactly like the British Empire disappeared, and now the Americans have taken over. That's the way it was in the ancient world. The Babylonians ruled all this time, and suddenly the Persians are in power. And the Persians are saying, we're going to rule forever. If you look at Daniel chapter 11, we're at the very beginning. Verse 1 says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is Gabriel. Reminded of chapter 9, verse 1, Gabriel's the angel later in the story of Jesus that comes and announces the birth of Jesus to Mary. So you'll understand that Gabriel's one of the very powerful, close messenger angels to our divine Father in heaven. And he's often the one that brings revelation. And now you have him playing an Old Testament role. He's just told us that he had to help Michael, who is the archangel that especially defends God's people. Remember last time we were together, I talked to you about that there's spiritual warfare going on, that we're not just dealing with human conflicts and emotional, psychological, material forces. We're also dealing with a transcendent, supernatural dimension. And Daniel's telling us that. So that's why your prayers and your worship are part of that. You even did battle spiritually as you praised the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's all very powerful this morning as we begin this Sunday. Gabriel is saying, I had to go help Michael out because Michael was being attacked by the powers of Persia. And the Lord wanted Cyrus, the first Persian king, to let the people of Israel go back home. They're God's chosen people, the ones that are following him, the ones that are going to produce the Messiah. So it's very important. Cyrus, in his first year, gave the decree that God wanted him to, get, to, to give, which meant that the angelic combination of Gabriel and Michael defeated the forces of darkness that were trying to keep the God's chosen people from being able to go back and rebuild the temple. That's all behind the scenes. Now Gabriel's going to do something really powerful. He's going to predict to God's servant as he begins the Persian Empire in the reign of Cyrus in his first year. Now Gabriel is going to go and give hundreds of years of history. And it's a history that a lot of us don't know very much about. If I were to quiz you on Egypt and the deliverance and the plagues and the deliverance that Moses gave, you're all really good on that. Even the story of Daniel, you know really well. Even seminary students struggle when I say, okay, 
we're going to go from the beginning of the Persian Empire until the time of Jesus. Then it gets rocky. In fact, in, we were even taught these were the silent years. And the idea is that God wasn't doing anything during the years. And basically, it means there weren't any inspired prophets, like when Malachi and Daniel and Haggai and all these guys at the beginning of the Persian Empire finished their prophecy. God didn't give any revealed scripture. So the idea is that God was totally silent and he wasn't working with his people. That's wrong. God was speaking to his people. In fact, what I'm going to teach you today is going to fill in all the way until 163 B.C., what we did this morning. So we're going to fill in all the way to just about 163 years before Jesus was born. Really, if you'd subtract 4 or 5 B.C. when Jesus was born, it's about 106, 159 years. Okay? So you'll be placed in history. Remember, Daniel 9 took us all the way till the time of the Messiah, the anointed one that would be cut off. Remember that? So Daniel 9 took us all the way to a history that you know really well, the story of your blessed Savior. I'm trying to put your feet firmly. Now, what he's going to do is going to sketch out, he's going to sketch out all the conflict. And so we're going to begin with the Persian Empire, and we read that there's going to be four more kings. It says, now then I tell you, this is Gabriel speaking, I tell you the truth. And you're going to have to decide as a believer who you believe tells you the truth. As a young person, as a child, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself is, who tells me the truth? And I believe that the angel Gabriel, the power of the Holy Spirit, a book like Daniel tells me the truth. Mary and I have chosen to build our lives on the fact that it's the truth. And now we're old people from a lot of your vantage points, although not really that old. But we found out that it was a good way to raise our kids. So you're going to decide whether you think this is the truth. In fact, some of you are going to go away to university, and they're going to teach you that this is not predictive history. This is someone that lived in the Maccabean period, and they just didn't give prophecy. They just retold the history of the world, and they'll even say that they screwed it up a little bit, especially at the end. So in a class at an Ivy League school or at a big university, I want all of you to know, and you need to train your kids, they're going to tell you that this looks like Daniel predicted history. But everybody knows that you can't predict history because it's open-ended. In the modern world, the dominant view is nobody knows where history is going. It's very weird because evolution says that history is progressing, but there's also a very strong emphasis upon the fact, the Buddhist idea that everything just cycles, and the most horrible thing is that somebody actually controls it, which means that it's going someplace, and there's going to be an end, and there's going to be good guys and bad guys. The modern world doesn't want to believe that. Well, I want you to know really strongly, I believe that. I believe that there's a living Lord, as I stand before you today, I believe that he could be with his servant at the beginning of the Persian Empire and had no trouble at all telling him who was going to come, who was going to rule, and what was going to happen. And Daniel presents himself as living before these events, and he predicts. What do you believe? Is your God strong enough to predict what's going to happen? You're going to have to decide. And I want you to know that the dominant view among most of the elite intellectuals is no. No one knows what's going to happen. Anything can happen, which means you can really do whatever you want to do, which has gotten Wall Street in a lot of bad trouble. And you're in a lot of bad trouble. 
What Daniel's saying, no, there's a God that you're responsible to. He knows history. He controls history. He controlled it so strongly that he can predict the history of what's going to happen. And that's what he begins to do. He says, Daniel, he says there's going to be three more kings that will appear in Persia. And then a fourth. This is three plus four. In Hebrew, that's an expression. It doesn't mean that there's going to be exactly four Persian kings. In fact, there's more like 16 or 11. It depends upon whether you count some guys that are there for a few months and then they get murdered. The idea in Hebrew is three plus four means that there's going to be several more kings. The scripture itself gives you four names of kings. Cyrus. Darius, Xerxes, who's the one that some of you kids that went to see Thermopylae, the Battle of Thermopylae, and, and then saw the Greeks uh, defeat the Persians at, at, at the Battle of Salamis. That's Xerxes, who is Queen Esther's husband, that really comes back with his tail between his legs. And then there's another king later that comes in named Artaxerxes. Those are the four biblical Persian kings that are mentioned. It's very possible that Gabriel's emphasizing them because they have a very special influence upon Daniel's people Israel because God says, I write things on the perspective of how they deal with my people. So that might be what's going on here. Basically, he's saying, hey, Cyrus, you think you're going to rule forever, but man, I got news for you. There's more kings to come. The next thing he says this is when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of grace, which introduces the next empire that's going to come. Gabriel's telling Daniel, you've lived through the Babylonian empire. You begin the Persian period. And now he's saying, you know, Persia's not going to be the end all. As Americans, you think we'll rule the world forever, don't you? You think you've always been the most powerful kingdom in the world. I got news for you. America has only been ascendant since 1945. We're babies in world government. Just to give you an idea, a whole bunch of you were taught, like Patton, we should have just rolled over the Russians. How many of you ever heard that? I was taught that as a kid. Man, we should have listened to Patton. Man, we should have taken Berlin, gone right through East Germany, gone all the way to Moscow. How many of you have ever heard that? We're crazy. Most of you say, oh, man, we could have easily done it. You know, there were 8 million Russian troops between us and Moscow. Stalin, you know, in fact, if you went to Russia and learned history from the Russian way, you wouldn't learn about Patton. In fact, you'd learn very little about the war in the Pacific. You'd learn all about 20 million men, Russians, that died. And millions of Germans. And most of you don't know anything about that history. Which Daniel's telling something. Hey, it's a perspective you look at. And what Daniel's telling us is that the Persians thought they were going to rule forever. That's Xerxes' pride. He attacked Greece. And he did it because he was arrogant. He had tons of money. He had powerful troops. He, he amassed thousands and thousands of men. He took war chariots and horses. He thought he could totally destroy the Greeks. But he was defeated. And at the Battle of Salamis, the little Greek ships maneuvered inside his clumsy ships. And the Persians had to go with their tail between their legs back into Persia, back home eventually to Babylon. And that's what Daniel's telling us. So what do we learn? Kingdoms strut their stuff. As a child of God, I'm never enamored by power. I'm careful not to believe, oh, we're going to bring in a new world order. That's the first thing we learn here. 
Now we have the next thing, and that is Alexander the Great. Now, if I were going to teach you about world history, I would spend the next months teaching about Alexander the Great. He is the biggie. Like you kids that are here, when you get through taking Texas history for about 12 times and you finally learn one class in world history, I'm teasing you a little bit. I've never been in a place where the kids learned their state history about 30 times. But they finally learn, they do learn about Alexander the Great. The kids have all come up to me, as I told you about. But I want you to know in the big scheme of world history, Alexander is called the Great because he is. He rose in Macedon, took over his father's army when his father died. By hook or by crick, he murdered people. He was a deceiver, but he was a genius militarily, a marvelously charismatic guy, great speaker. He swept all the way through Afghanistan, all the way into India. So he is great. And if I wanted to teach about world history, he is a big name. Notice the way Gabriel talks about this guy. Look what it says. Then a mighty king, God does say Alexander is a mighty king, will appear. He will rule great power with great power. He will do as he pleases. Remember, I've taught you, this is a major thing Daniel wants you to learn. Be careful when you think you can do whatever you want. That is a pride that cometh before the fall. One of the things this chapter wants you to learn. Alexander did whatever he pleased, but did he? It says he will do whatever he pleases. That meant that no one could conquer him. No one could defeat him. He could march all the way to the, to the rivers in the Hindus Valley. And the only thing to turn his back is his men said, man, we are tired of fighting. We're going home. So he came back to Babylon, had big parties, and got drunk as a skunk. And he even threw a javelin through one of his best friends that, that had been with him from the beginning. All kinds of stories about Alexander. Daniel just says he was great with power. He did it as pleased. But after he had appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of the heavens. And Alexander is gone in one half of a verse. Amen? That's what your heavenly father thinks about world-renowned leaders. So that tells us something. It does tell us it's very accurate. If you know about history, Alexander's empire was divided up. He had a son that was born posthumously. He made it for a little while till he was murdered. He had one of his relatives that tried to rule in Babylon, but his four generals, and the two generals I want you to really think about, there's a general named Seleucid who is ruling over the area of Babylon. There's another general that's had the troops, Alexander's troops, down in Egypt, which is the king of the south, and his name was Ptolemy. And for the rest of the morning, you're going to be hearing about Ptolemy and Seleucid, the north and the south. We have the ancient equivalent, not of the rebels against the Yankees, but we have the ancient north-south war. That's what's going on. So Alexander the Great's empire was divided to the four winds, and what it's saying is what it was divided into four areas. Macedon and Greece is one area. Asia Minor is the next area. Babylon and the areas coming to the east towards India, and then to the south, which is Egypt. What's right in the middle between what you know as modern-day Baghdad, which is real close to ancient Babylon, and Cairo? What's right in the middle? If you march an army from Baghdad and you march an army from Cairo, where do you meet? In Israel, okay? And that's real important because that's what's going to be going on. So Daniel predicts 
that the Greek empire is going to be divided to the, four, to the four winds. And now he starts going through what's going to be the history of the generals that are trying to control the world. He says this, it will not go to his descendants. So like I just told you, Alexander the Great, his little boy was killed, and then his relative was killed by his generals, nor will it have the power to be exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others, the four generals that I'm going to be talking about. Now, the king of the south, that's Ptolemy, will become strong. So the very first Ptolemy in Egypt, he's one of Alexander the Greats, he becomes very powerful. But one of his commanders, actually Seleucus, was under the power of Ptolemy. And here's why. The ruler over the area of Asia, you don't need to remember these names, but his name was Antigonus. He attacked Seleucus, who was ruler of Babylon. And Antigonus was more powerful. So Seleucus ran to Egypt and joined with General Ptolemy. And Ptolemy protected him, exactly like Daniel's saying. The king of the south would become strong. And he and Seleucus got their armies together, and they beat Antigonus. And Seleucus went back to Babylon, and exactly like the angel predicted to Daniel, one of his commanders, that's Seleucus, goes back, and he becomes much stronger than the one that was his benefactor in the beginning, which is Ptolemy. He became even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. And that's exactly what happened. The first Seleucus gets much more territory. The dream is to be like Alexander. He's able to solidify his empire to the east. He's able to sweep. He actually controls much of the Holy Land, which you know is modern-day Israel, and Lebanon, all that area, and Jordan. So that's what's going on here. Now there's about 35 years that go past, and notice what it says next. After some years, they will become become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. What in the world is going on here? Well, I could say this is really an intriguing story. 35 years go by. The first Seleucus dies, and another Seleucus comes on the throne. The first Ptolemy dies, and another ruler comes up in Egypt. And they decide, have you ever heard this? We're going to use the women to solidify relationships. And that's what they did in the ancient world. And this is what happened. Antiochus, this is not the Antiochus that we're going to talk about, the great or Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the first Antiochus. He is married to a girl named Laodice. Ptolemy has a daughter named Bernice. And because Antiochus falls out of relationship with Laodice, really politically, he marries Bernice. And she comes north. And this is a great story. She comes with all of her Egyptian entourage. She comes with thousands upon thousands of gold talents and silver talents. And you think Wall Street is wealthy. This is even more wealthy. She comes marching all the way north. And she ends up in the kingdom of the north. Right when she gets there, just about a year afterwards, her husband falls back in love with Laodice. Girls, watch out. When those guys go back and forth, it's treacherous. On the side, husbands, that's why you keep your covenant. 
And I want you to listen to what happens when you don't believe in promises, you sleep around, you think you might get a better deal economically. My wife doesn't have a lot of money. The girl that I really like at work that smells so great, she has a rich father. So I don't want to live in poor little Midlothian on the backside of the street. If I marry this beautiful girl at work, I'll get a ton of money. Watch out. Antiochus falls back in favor with Laodice. She comes back. She had been hiding in Ephesus. You've all heard that, or maybe Smyrna, which is so you'll understand how the cities keep coming around. Laodice comes all the way back to the Middle East. Suddenly, her husband dies, probably poisoned by Laodice. Bernice is in a bad way. She had a baby, and Laodice killed him. She also kills Bernice after about a year or so, and all of the Egyptian entourage has to run back to Egypt, and Daniel told Now, some of you say, I just can't believe what's going on in the world today. How many of you have listened to the news? I just can't believe Wall Street's so terrible, and I just can't believe those Europeans are so immoral. And I can't believe the violence in the world. Be wise. Be wise. Daniel goes on. He jumps a little bit further into this history. It says, one from her family line, that's her brother, is ruling in Egypt, will arise to take her place. And he attacked to the north because his sister was killed. Now he's going to march to the north. This is another Ptolemy. He attacked the forces of the north, and he enters his fortress, and he will fight against them, and he's victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So this is what's going on. Bernice's brother is now ruler of Egypt, and his sister was killed, so he's going to go on advantage. When Antiochus I died, a weak ruler comes onto the throne of this northern part of the empire. So Ptolemy in the, in the south just says, man, this is my moment. So he marches to the north, and he meets, he meets right in the land of Israel, which they're fighting over, and he wins a great victory. Ptolemy, Philippator is the name in history, destroys the, Syri- the Syrians, the Seleucids, and wins a great victory. And he rejoices. They have big parties. He gets all kinds of money when he does it. But he doesn't press. And that's what Daniel's telling us. He doesn't press his victory. Like he doesn't go after the army of the Seleucids. He doesn't invade Babylon. In fact, he decides, man, I won a great victory. Let's rejoice. And he lives for luxury. Ever heard any of that? Like you're all saying, I just can't believe these Wall Street giants. They live in these beautiful Westchester's homes. And they live in the, they have yachts and everything else. How could they be so stupid? This is hundreds of years before Jesus. Philippator decided, I like my beautiful mansions. I like having big parties. He forgot the enemy that he just defeated is going to come back. So the king of the north attacks. And Daniel predicts, look what happens. The king of the north attacks. For some years he left the king of the north alone, but then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south. But he has to retreat to his country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. What happened was the king of the south had to quickly regain his footing. They continue to fight. 
The Romans start to get involved in some of their early negotiating, and it goes back and forth. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army. And this is incredible. Like if you, the kids that are here, these guys have, they have about 72,000 men on one side, about 60,000 men on the other. And the, the, the rulers of Syria have about a little bit less men, about 70,000 men. They got elephants. The king of the south, so you all hear the stories about Hannibal. Here it is right here in the Bible. Hannibal is stirring all this up because he hasn't been totally defeated yet. And so they got elephants. And it looks like because the Egyptians have superior numbers, they're going to win, but they don't. This time the Syrians win. And they're able to whoop up on the southerners in this case. So it says they raised a large army, but when the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride, will slaughter many thousands. This is the first battle, but the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first. And after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. Those verses deal with both of what I was sharing. Just, I, I, just so you won't be confused. It talked in those verses about the first victory that Ptolemy has. And then it talked about the second victory that the king of the north has. Part of what Daniel wants you to see is this jockey's back and forth. And the warfare goes on and on. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people rebel in the fulfillment of the vision, but without success. And what's happening is there's a great victory. In fact, Mary and I have been in Caesarea Philippi. The ancient name is Pontius. And the Syrians won a great victory. It's right at the foot of Mount Hermon. The Egyptian general Scopus went to the sea. And this is right at the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's a beautiful area. It looks like Colorado. But the Syrians won at Pontius, or Caesarea Philippi later. Then they do press their victory. They defeat the Egyptians, and the, the Egyptians have to flee the south. And for the rest of this time period, in the rest of our chapter, the Syrians are going to be controlling the land of Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel, so you'll have the modern picture. And that's what it's describing here. It said, in those times, many will arise. So some, when it says that some of the violent among, among the Lord's people, these are Israelites, and Daniel's predicting that some of the Israelites will see what's happening. It's possible that these violent men were guerrilla warriors that sided with the... It, it's hard to tell exactly which side they were on. It's very possible that they sided with the Egyptians, because the factions were going back and forth, just like in the days of Jeremiah. And they didn't know which side was going to win. So these violent men say, we're going to be the guerrilla warriors. And we're going to win a victory. And then when the Syrians won, they have to flee to Egypt. All that's going on. And part of what I want you to see is that Daniel wants you to know that God knows, if you're a soldier here, if you're a policeman here, if you're a fireman here, a lot of you are my close friends. What you tell me is you wonder, what's the connection between Sunday morning and what I do Monday morning? What about all the blood? What about all the craziness? What about political leaders that don't know what they're doing? And I lose my brothers and my sisters because of dumb decisions. How in the world do my Jesus stories relate to all that? And that's what I want you to think hard about. What Daniel 11 is telling you, I've sketched out some of the history because one of the things Daniel is learning from Gabriel is there's a great king over history. I don't understand it, 
but he knows about the victories in battle and the defeats in battle. He knows about intrigue and treaties that are made and treaties that are broken. He knows about this incessant warfare. He knows all about the excitement. And he says, those that are wise understand that I don't get all whomped up and think that this is going to be the end and this is going to bring up eternal justice and they're going to bring up eternal peace. Instead, I'm very realistic. I understand that I'm in a great conflict. There's incredible spiritual warfare over God's people. There's incredible national intrigue back and forth. I'm teaching you as a body of Christ. Don't ever feel this is it. We got it this time. What this chapter tell me, I remember when we invaded Iraq. I was in Nebraska. I had just done a pastor's conference. And I remember on the radio, because in Nebraska I had no TV. It wasn't because there aren't TVs in Nebraska, but it's where I was. And I remember everyone was debating. Remember how excited we were about going to Iraq? Remember how we marched all the way to Baghdad? And it was all going to be over. And this is the idea. I want you to know this is very relevant. What was happening is political leaders said, we're going to plant a democracy in the Middle East right in Iraq because we can do it. Because Saddam Hussein, we can get him, and he's our enemy. We're going to plant a democracy in the Middle East, and then the Middle East will fall like dominoes. And there will be peace on earth. We'll solve the Israeli problem. We'll solve the Palestinian problems. We'll all live happily ever after. Anybody ever heard that? And some of you are saying, man, if we just would have done it, it would have worked. Daniel's saying, learn your history. Learn your history. Do you know what a Sunni is? Do you know what a Shiite is? Do you know what an ancient Assyrian Christian is? Do you know what a secular Sunni is? Do you know what a committed fundamentalist Sunni is? And government officials that are standing before me, Daniel's teaching you, history is important. My son's going to have a PhD in history because evidently Mary and I poured some kind of love of history. If you go to Washington this week, my son right this week is with a bunch of guys from a church and a bunch of those guys work in the government. You need to pray for them because we do have world power. And you can't just sit and pretend. You need to know what's on the ground in Iraq. What's on the ground in Lebanon. What's on the ground in Israel. Most of all, you need to know. When somebody tells you, we're going to bring worldwide democracy and worldwide peace, you go, watch out. This is really important. Because I have little boys that were raised in our church that I taught them years ago from a book like this. They learned all about Nebuchadnezzar. And they learned all about Antiochus the Great. And they learned all about Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. And those little boys learned all of their memory verses in Awana. And they told some of you that taught them, who cares? Who cares? But then they were at Paris Island. And then they got further training in Iraqi warfare. And some of those precious little boys are grown men 
and they found themselves on the border between Iraq and Syria with an M16 in their hand. And suddenly, the warfare between northern Middle East and Egypt and Israel and Lebanon and all this stuff, their buddies were dying about that. What I want you to get what Daniel's saying, some of my young friends that are now young men, they've seen their buddies die in their arms and bleed. And they found out that they got to Iraq that some of the political leaders that sent them, sent them there didn't know what they were doing. And they wondered whether anyone knew what it was doing. And they served two terms, three terms, and they came home. Some of you are here this morning. You did that in Vietnam. Some of you did it in Korea. And some of you, deep in your soul, you're saying, what in the world does Sunday morning have to do with my buddy dying in my arms, and I'm not sure why death, constant warfare, promises, broken promises. And Daniel's coming here this morning, and your heavenly father is saying, I'm in control of history. There isn't justice on the earth. Don't believe the promises of Antiochus, the first or the second or the third or the fourth. Don't believe the promises of the Ptolemy to the south. In the modern world of the child of God, don't think the Republicans can save us. They didn't. And today, don't think that the Democrats can save us. If you're a child of God, both Democrat and Republican that are here this morning, you have a deeper loyalty. And as your pastor teacher, that's what I want you to be excited about. Daniel is going to go on in this chapter, and we'll pick up the discussion. As he goes, he's going to talk about Antiochus the Great, who was the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to talk about that our next time. And Antiochus is going to destroy the incredible worship in the temple. And it's going to tell us that God's people are going to wonder how in the world is this ever going to work out. But where we're heading is Daniel saying, those that are wise are going to shine like the stars. It says those who know their God, and that's what I'm going to be driving home these next few weeks, those that are skillful, We need born-again believers that are right at the top of the university scene. You don't just live in a little ghetto. If you're homeschooling your kids, that's awesome. You need to teach them what I taught this morning. They need to know this history cold. They need to read books like Thomas Freedom's From Beirut to Jerusalem. So you start to understand what's really going on from someone that was on the ground. But you also teach your kids... Thomas Friedman was a Jew, born in Minnesota, the New York Times representative through all the civil war in Beirut, and then was the time correspondent in Jerusalem. As he left Beirut after the American Marines were blown up and after the country is devastated by war, he said he stood 
on the edge of a village that had been devastated by Israeli shelling and Syrian shelling with Arthur Blessed. Arthur's a nut from an unbeliever New York Times Jewish reporter. And Thomas Friedman said, I love Arthur. Arthur was there with his young son. You know what Arthur does? He carries a big rugged cross all over the world. He's a nut. And his boy carried a little cross. And Thomas Frieden said, these are the nutcases that Beirut and Lebanon attract. And Arthur picked up his cross and kept walking through the world. Now, I don't think the Lord wants most of you to carry a cross. But as I read Thomas Frieden's word, I said, Thomas, you told me incredible insights into Beirut, incredible insights into Israel. Talking to me about what Daniel 11 is talking about. It goes back and forth. The land of Israel's punted like a football, fumbled and recaptured. The thing goes on and on. But your term of derision, you called foolish the very first time in your book you mentioned the old rugged cross. Why? Because Daniel the prophet that I'm teaching about said that the only hope for the Jewish people, the only hope for the Palestinian people, the only hope for the American people, the only hope for the Russians, the only hope for the Chinese, the only hope for all of Latin America, and on and on it goes, is a Messiah that didn't have hubris, pride. He didn't do what he pleased. He didn't march across the world and strut his stuff. Instead, he said, Father, not my will, not my will, but your will be done. Daniel 11 is telling you, policemen, God knows all about the murder and the drug cultures and the gangs. He's telling you all, you firemen, he knows all about your rushing for emergencies. He's telling all you moms that are afraid your little kids are going to be hurt, like, I could have lost our youngest son just like that on that icy night. Didn't even know it. Flipping in a Cherokee. How do we keep going? Daniel 11 says, hey, Dave, I'm the heavenly father. I can predict history because I write it. And it has a great, great climax. And Alexander the Great doesn't win. And Antiochus the Great doesn't win. And Antiochus Epiphany doesn't win. Humble Daniels that choose to trust the promise of the anointed one named Yeshua. He will save us because he will forgive us for our sins. Humble children of God that are willing to suffer for Jesus, that are willing to be honest for Jesus, that are willing to tell the truth for Jesus, that are willing not to steal for Jesus, that are willing not to be immoral for Jesus. Humble followers of this incredibly anointed one. They win. Amen? As you study Daniel 11, the coming week, it's hard. The history gets old. But you're going to find out that the history just keeps going on and on when all the smoke is cleared. It's this resurrected, incredible, glorious Savior that wins.